You're listening to an audio resource from Vineyard Church of the Rockies in Fort Collins, Colorado. We are joining God's mission, transforming all things, and you're invited. To learn more about us and how you can connect, please visit votr.church. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jeff. We want to welcome you to the Vineyard. I'm the lead pastor here at the Vineyard. So thankful that we can gather and worship together. It's so great to be surrounded by uh, each other's voices, worshiping God. I want to also give just a quick welcome to everyone on the live stream. We know that every week many of you are tuning in, and I just want you to know we're praying for you. We're so thankful that you can join us this morning as well. We pray this service is a blessing to you this morning. Today, as you saw in the video, we're starting our new sermon series for the whole summer. Every year, all summer long, we do one sermon series, and we intentionally kind of slow our pace down and more methodically move our way through scriptures together. And we just noticed as, you know, we all do the Colorado summer thing, as we're traveling, as we're visiting family, as we're up in the mountains, this is a great way for everyone to stay in touch with us, knowing kind of where we're going, where we've been, and it's just a great way to move through the scriptures together. I was thinking about the books that we've studied together during the summer over the last couple of years. You remember a while back, we studied the book of Acts together. I thought that was a really good one. Last year, we did Jesus in the Old Testament, and so we were looking at all the points where the Old Testament pointed to this coming Messiah. And if you were here a couple of years ago, you might remember studying the book of Revelation together. Getting some head nods. It was during the global pandemic, you might remember. And so we studied the book of Revelation in the parking lot when it was like a thousand degrees on that asphalt. And that was the same year as the horrible mountain fire. So ash was literally raining down on us as we're preaching the book of Revelation in the middle of a global pandemic. It was like a constant apocalyptic visual aid. (laughs) And I felt like we didn't even need slides or anything. It was just all right there for us in the air and the coughing. Well, I'm excited this year, equally excited this year, because today we're starting a 10-week journey all summer long in a series called The Best Sermon Ever. The best sermon ever. It's not self-promotion. We are not the best preachers ever. It's a reference to Jesus' most famous sermon found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, 6, and 7, biblically what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably the most famous piece of recorded dialogue in all of human history. And there's a risk in only going through three chapters in 10 weeks, right? The risk in going that slow and kind of uh, meandering your way through the scriptures is that you can begin to become hyper-focused on only the little details and nuances of the scripture. The, The small details are fascinating. It's always fun to unpack some of those things and apply them to our life. But sometimes you can get too focused on the details and miss the meta-narrative or the overarching themes of the entire Sermon on the Mount. You know, I had a, a seventh grade middle school teacher, social studies teacher. He was our basketball coach too. He was, a, he was an interesting guy. You always, you always get a couple of those interesting teachers. This guy was filled with one-liners. He was our basketball coach, like I said too, so he would famously always say, if you can walk, talk, and chew gum, I can teach you basketball. Like this was, it was his MO. Of course, he used it in a negative way too if he was kicking you off the team. Um, But yeah, I'm scarred deeply. Um, 
No, but he, he also had this other one. It wasn't his. He didn't come up with the phrase, but he used it all the time. He said, boys, come here, come here. Boys, you got to see the forest for the trees. You got to see the forest for the trees, right? And it was this, this whole phrase around being able to see the big picture, not getting lost in every little tree as you meander through the forest, but you got to be able to see the entire picture, the whole forest as well. You know, details can be incredibly good. And we're going to study many of those in the next nine weeks. But today, what we're going to do is we're actually going to zoom out a little bit, and we're going to look at the entire forest, so to speak, of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at the overarching themes of the Sermon on the Mount, because it's important to be able to have the whole picture before you put the little pieces together and kind of link them together in a chain. And so today, I'm going to imperfectly preach the best sermon ever. When you start with the Sermon on the Mount, when you start with any scripture for that matter, it's always important to understand the context of what you're about to read, understanding the context of the scripture that you're studying. And this is important because as you read the New Testament, as you read the whole Bible, particularly the life of Jesus, you have to realize that everything that he said and everything that he did didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened in a real time, in real space, with real people that he was around, and it meant specific things to all the people that he was preaching to. And for the Sermon on the Mount, the context is actually pretty easy to find because it's tucked in the verses just from the preceding chapter. If you read the end of Matthew chapter 4, you'll find the context for really all of the next few chapters stringing together. And it's very similar to a series that we did this spring called the Everyday Kingdom. The Everyday Kingdom. Let's read Matthew 4 verses 23 and 25. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. Now, verse 25, large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea and from east of the Jordan River. Right here, you get the context for Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and it's all about the kingdom of God. Through both proclamation and demonstration, Jesus was consistently bringing the kingdom through word and through deed, through word and action. I mean, he's He's healing people. He's announcing the gospel of the kingdom. It says large crowds were beginning to follow him. And then the very next verse is Matthew 5, chapter 1, where it says he gathered the people around him. He gathered his disciples around him, and he began to teach them, opening with this most famous verse, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In a lot of ways, the Sermon on the Mount is this inaugural address of the kingdom of God. Jesus is, is acting almost like a president who just got elected. He's addressing the kingdom for the very first time, and he's declaring to anyone who would listen, this is what it's like to live in my kingdom. This is what we are about in the kingdom of God. And so the sermon for the next three chapters really is the bedrock of kingdom living. N.T. Wright is one of my favorite theologians and writers, and he said this about the kingdom of God, this is, or about the Sermon on the Mount, excuse me. This is my paraphrase. He said, the Sermon on the Mount isn't just good teaching about timeless truths, but through this sermon, Jesus was rewriting history. 
inaugurating his kingdom with a special address and saying to anyone who would listen then and anyone listening today, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is coming today. It will be fulfilled in the future, but this is what my kingdom is like, and this is how kingdom people live. This is the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus announcing and proclaiming and preaching about the kingdom of God. That's the context. But for the content, especially for the larger picture and kind of the overarching themes of the Sermon on the Mount, I love how pastor and theologian Tim Keller explained it. He said the Sermon on the Mount needs to be understood from the vantage point of its glory, its terror, and its hero. This sermon, these three chapters, is filled with glory. It's filled with terror, and it has a hero. And spoiler alert for all of us, you are not that hero. This is really good news for all of us, right? Let's start by looking at the glory of the Sermon on the Mount, the glory of the Sermon on the Mount. Whenever you read this sermon from start to finish, you realize pretty quickly that it is filled with glory. I mean, so much has been written about the Sermon on the Mount. You could fill all of the days of your life with its commentaries and applications and studies. It's truly a glorious sermon on how to live as we follow Christ. Even non-believers have flocked to this sermon to find inspiration. Social and political leaders quote the Sermon on the Mount. They love the Sermon on the Mount. Influencers from all different backgrounds will pick the goal that they want to talk about from the Sermon on the Mount. President Franklin Roosevelt said this about the glory and potential impact of the best sermon ever. He said, I doubt if there is and I doubt if there is any problem in the world today, social, political, or economic, that would not find a happy solution if approached in the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount. A kingdom living simply transforms the world. Pastors know this. Christians believe it. Even presidents have quoted it and imagined its impact on society. And when you look at all of the topics, you realize pretty quickly Jesus covered a lot of ground in three chapters. I mean, it was rapid fire, topic after topic after topic. I'm going to share a few of the glorious highlights this morning. And then, of course, in the next nine weeks, we're going to slow down and move our way through it together. But I love even the very first word, the very first word of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed. Not blessed like a, like a shallow or worldly replacement that he is here one day and gone the next, but blessed from God. It means that you can be fully mature. You can be fully developed as a disciple of Christ, that you can live a prosperous life according to the kingdom of God, not necessarily the kingdom of this world. This is how Jesus starts. Blessed. You will be blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who show mercy, for they will be given mercy. I mean, you read through these pages, you're caught up in the glory because who in mourning doesn't need comfort? Who, who has shown mercy doesn't need mercy? And God, from the very beginning, is saying, if you follow me, if you give me your life, you shall be called blessed in all of these different Ways. A bit later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also said that as followers of Christ, we get this special glory-filled relationship with the world around us, that we're called to live in this glory-filled relationship with all of the world. 
Matthew 5, verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Now, we quote those things, and we share them with our children, and it's beautiful, and it's amazing, but when you really think about it, I mean, think about you are the light of the world. In John 8, just a few books later, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And right here, he's telling you that you are the light of the world. Undoubtedly, he's not saying you're going to be the exact same replica, you're going to be the exact same light, you're going to live the exact same way as Jesus did. We have all fallen short of that that uh, pinnacle. But Jesus says, in some way, in one way or another, if you follow me, I will put my light in you and you will be a testimony to the world around you. You will draw people to the kingdom of God because you are the light of the world. Not only do we have a glorious filled relationship with the world around us, but we have this glory filled relationship with individuals. The sermon continues with things like, you're called to have integrity with every individual around you. Such high integrity that when you say yes, it just means yes. When you say no, it just means no. It's that simple. That you're to live with forgiveness and reconciliation. Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if someone strikes you on the cheek, to turn your other cheek and even love your enemies. Imagine what that would do to the world. Imagine what that would do to the relationships that God's, where God has placed you. He continues, though, with this glorious teaching. He says, for you to care for the poor, to be so generous, not like kind of generous, but so generous that your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing. You're just living and breathing generosity, giving the glory of God to the people around you. There are glorious promises and glorious blessings and calls to action throughout this sermon. And in the coming weeks, we're going to unpack them together. And I know, I know that if we respond to Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount, that not only will it change and transform our lives, but we'll start to see it change and transform the world around us. But Tim Keller said, it's not all about glory. It's not only a sermon about glory. There's also some terror filled in these pages. There's also some terror tucked inside of this sermon. And one of the problems for many, at least when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, is the sheer amount of convicting and challenging and even revealing verses when it comes to the words Jesus said. Again, in the coming weeks, we'll unpack more about what this means, but I'm going to share a few of the terrifying verses with you. Just so you know on the front end, we are going to dig into these. Choose your weeks wisely, I suppose. I'm not going to tell you when we're preaching these ones. It's going to show up and it's going to be there. Matthew 5, verse 20, but I warn you, this is Jesus. When Jesus says, but I warn you, we should all pay attention. Jesus says, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a tough verse. And as tough as it sounds for us today, I can promise you it was terrifying to the original hearers. Utterly terrifying. The religious leaders and the Pharisees in the days of Jesus, they were known for their strict adherence to the law and all of the rules and all of the regulations. Their righteousness was always put on display for everyone to see. They not only had the Old Testament memorized, but they had this document called the Mishnah. It was an 800-page 
document filled with additional comments and interpretations on the Old Testament. And if 800 pages of extra rules isn't enough, they also had the Talmud, which was commentaries on top of the commentaries. And they lived by all of that as well. I mean, they lived by the most strict type of religious zeal that you can imagine. And when Jesus looked at the crowd and he said, you know these people, you know these people who live at such a high standard, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the best of the best, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. This had to be terrifying to the original hearers. And if that wasn't enough heat, Jesus turned it up just a little bit more. In Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus said, But you, you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Perfect like the one who created all things. Perfect like, like, like the one who, who never sins. Perfect like the one who is in heaven who started this whole thing. I mean, the list of terrifying verses goes on and on and on. Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, even if you hold anger in your heart, you've already committed murder. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you the truth. Even if you've lusted after another, you've already cheated. These are the verses inside of the Sermon on the Mount. See, Jesus knew that outward actions, they start with inklings in the heart and inklings in the mind. And he was never interested in only behavior modification or obligatory obedience. He wanted a transformation of your heart at its core. This is what Jesus has always been after. Sermon on the Mount is definitely filled with glory and it starts so beautifully with the Beatitudes but the more you read the Sermon on the Mount, the more you think to yourself, how on earth can this be true? Jesus, you started so well. You started with what looked like was going to be the best sermon ever. And now, I don't know if I can talk to you or talk about you with my friends. This is some hard stuff. This brings up a bit of terror within me. An old English professor named Virginia Stem Owens, she was an English professor at both Texas A&M as well as Northeast Missouri State. She always wanted her students to read a, a variety of different literature pieces, and so for one of her assignments, she had her English class read the Sermon on the Mount and write a personal essay in response to the sermon. And it was definitely like a secular approach to a sacred text, but the exercise was incredibly interesting to read the Sermon on the Mount and to write a personal reflection and essay based on what you read. Here are some of the responses from actual college papers written by students in her class. First quote, the things asked, <clears throat> excuse me, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman lustfully is adultery. To harbor anger is like murder. These are the most extreme, stupid, inhuman statements I've ever heard. The second quote, I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. Dr. Seuss. <clears throat> I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Now, what that student doesn't know is they are inches away from giving their life to the Lord. Inches away from giving their life 
the Lord. Professor Owen said, finally, we've reached a point in American history where biblical illiteracy has come to the place where people can respond to Jesus without filtering him through 2,000 years of cultural haze. Honest, ignorant ears hear the sermon as it is, and it's terrifying. My students hated it, and they rejected it. And anyone who opens the Gospel of Matthew and they begin to read the Sermon on the Mount, first you're drawn to its glory, and then you're confronted with the holiness of God, and you're confronted with the reality that he calls us to that same holiness. If you read it with honesty and humility, it probably leaves you a bit disturbed. It stirs within your heart. It makes many of us wonder if we ever gave our life to Christ in the first place. It leaves you bewildered, maybe even a bit terrified. And that's this mixture of glory and terror that you can sometimes read in the Sermon on the Mount. I had a recent moment in my own day-to-day life where glory and terror was mixed together like this. Not quite to the extent of like God's holiness and the terror of the Sermon on the Mount, but glory and terror nonetheless. We were celebrating our youngest, little Gabby, our, our youngest kinder celebration moment where she kind of moved from kindergarten on to first grade. And these things are always precious, right? I mean, they're amazing. They're always precious. And we went, we sat in the back so we could take the pictures and get caught up in the moment and everything. And at the end, or towards the end of the celebration, the principal stood up and she looked at all of the parents and she said, let's now cheer for the graduating class of 2034. And everyone started clapping and cheering And uh, I was not clapping or cheering. (laughs) I started to get a bit anxious, actually. And I look over at Natalie, and I I just kind of push her. Like, we're like, Nat, babe, 2034. Like, that's that's not that far away. We're we're now done with kindergarten. We're, like, done with kindergarten forever. What, What has happened? And she's like, yeah, I know. It's really sweet. I said, no, 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 no. It's not sweet. What have I done? What? What have I missed? Like, she's already six years old. 85% of her brain is already developed. That's what all the science says. I'm in trouble. We, we need a savior in our family. Like, Gabby needs a savior. And I kind of had this, I mean, it wasn't this loud. But it was that loud in here. And I just had this kind of freak out moment where I just started praying, Lord, we, we need your help. I need your help. Gabby needs your help. We need your help today, this week, this month. We need your help till 2034 and beyond. We need you to come. Now, those little freak out moments, they can spin you in a couple of different directions, but if you lean into them with Jesus, they can be a really, really good thing. And they can be good because just like you, when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you kind of have this freak out moment. You kind of realize, I can't do this on my own. I have no idea how to approach this scripture. It helps you start asking the right kind of questions. And you might be able to clean up your life a little bit with strict obedience and incredible zeal, but I can promise you that energy and that strength will ultimately fail. Sooner or later, you won't have the power to make yourself better. You won't have the the power to transform your own soul. You won't have the power when all the cards are laid on the table to get yourself to heaven. We can't live a clean enough life to earn God's favor. 
We can't be perfect in our own strength. Our own righteousness will fail. Every one of us have different little things tucked inside of our heart, whether it's anger or lust or deceit or pride or greed. The list goes on and on and on. They don't always flare up, but from time to time they do. And when they do, they leave us feeling completely unqualified. They help us ask the question, where will my help come from? Because every single one of us in this room and every single person online, every person that you bump into as you go about your day, every single one of us needs a savior. We need a hero. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, it is a lifestyle that we aspire towards. It's something that we need to allow to convict us and inspire us and empower us to follow Jesus in every area of our life. All those things are true, but the Sermon on the Mount also helps us realize that we cannot live what's in this book on our own. That we need help. We need a hero. We need a savior. It's the only way that we bump into the kingdom moving forward. That doesn't mean that you don't step out and try. It doesn't mean that you don't try to improve yourself and apply these words to your lives. Of course you do, but the cold hard truth is that if you read the sermon enough and if you follow Jesus long enough, you realize pretty quickly and pretty often that you miss this mark, that we all do. But thankfully, the Christian faith has never rested. The Christian faith has never rested in our ability to live clean lives. Our faith doesn't grow from our achievements in holiness, and it doesn't crumble from our failures in sin. Our faith is not in our perfection. It's in His. Our faith is in a Savior and a King and a hero who already lived the Sermon on the Mount perfectly. Every word that you read in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lived perfectly. And He offers us His righteousness in place of our shortcomings. I mean, if you think about the Christian faith, the Christian faith, is, it's really pretty lousy if it rests on our ability to achieve holiness. It's no good if it rests on our ability to like grit our teeth, grab the steering wheel of life, and make ourselves more righteous or make ourselves more perfect. What Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, he knew that it would terrify the listener for thousands of years. And he said it anyway, because he knew that it would elicit the right kind of questions, the questions about salvation, and the questions about how we can follow him, and how we can learn to walk in his footsteps. The truth is, we just can't do it on our own. We need him to be our Savior, and we need him to help us along the way. Jesus lived this perfectly, and the Christian faith works because we don't have to rely on our own perfection or our lack thereof to follow him. Christianity works because we follow his perfection. We follow his righteousness, and he offers it to us when we surrender our life to him. He walked the earth with no lust. He walked the earth with no hatred. He walked the earth with no jealousy or greed in his heart. He fulfilled the law to perfection while redefining what it meant to follow God. When he was struck on his face, he turned the other cheek. When he was hanging on the cross, he continued to hunger and cry out for justice and righteousness. This is the man we follow. 
even said that if you build your life on this solid rock, when the winds of life, when the waves of life come crashing upon you and they're pressing you on every side and it feels like you can't breathe and it feels like you can't take another step, he said, your life will be sustained by my power in you. He is our Savior. He is our King, and He is our hero. I'm going to close with a verse from the Sermon on the Mount that you're going to hear again next week, but it's important to grasp on the very front end because it's the first verse Jesus said, and it sets up the, the beauty for the rest of the sermon. And in a lot of ways, this first verse is the, the hinge on how our heart will fall with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 5, chapter 3, when Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit is a phrase depicting in utter humility an awareness of our poverty when we stand before God. It's an awareness that our spirit cannot save us, only his can. That our righteousness or good deeds or nice thoughts or our flickers of light aren't enough. That only his life for ours will qualify us. To stand before God with poverty of spirit in a lot of ways is to stand before him and say, Lord, I am spiritually bankrupt. I'm spiritually bankrupt. Even some of my best moments have mixed motives behind them. And my pure moments are here one day, but they're gone the next. I am spiritually bankrupt, and I need you, Jesus, to be my Savior. Listen, if you're a follower of Christ, then hear those words this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Your ability, your ability to live out the Sermon on the Mount, it's fueled by the posture of your heart with this verse. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ, then let me encourage you to make that decision today. To make the decision to rely on Christ as your Savior today. This verse is your key, just like it's mine, just like it's everyone. Starting a relationship with Jesus means standing before him with humility in your heart, poverty in your spirit, and confessing to him that, that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you can't do it on your own that you need his life in you and through you and for you so that you can be made whole. It's simple as praying a prayer like this. God, I've tried it my way and I haven't gotten very far. And now I'm willing to try it your way. So Jesus, I give you my life as broken as it is, as imperfect as it is, as poor as it is, I realize that I can't be my own savior. So Jesus, come into my life and Forgive me and heal me and help me to follow you from this day forward. Whether you're, you've been a Christian your whole life or whether you're starting today, all of our experiences in the kingdom of God will start with a poverty of spirit. So I want to encourage you once again, or maybe for the very first time, to fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on the one who lived this sermon perfectly, asking for his perfect life to perfect yours. His perfect life to perfect yours.
Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you preached. That you preached to anyone who would listen the way of the kingdom, the life in the kingdom, and what it means to follow you. Lord, as we approach this sermon series, as we approach this text, we see the glory. We're confronted with the terror. May it help us run to you as our hero. Lord Jesus, come and have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you're new to the vineyard, after every sermon, we always just create an opportunity for you to sit quietly and reflect on all that you've just heard. And we have come to realize that we move at such a fast pace in our culture that if we're just on to the next thing, sometimes we can miss God's still small voice or the way that he might be tapping you on the shoulder right now. And for some of you, the way that he's tapping you on the shoulder right now is because you've never made a decision for Christ and he's saying to you right now, today is the day. Today is the day you surrender your life to me. Today is the day where you surrender it all and I began my transformative work inside of you. God might have been speaking to you just subtly throughout this entire sermon. If that's you, then let me boldly say today could be a day where the rest of your life, starting the rest of your life could be changed from this point forward. For others of us, I think it's a moment of recommitment. Lord, I, Lord and your prayer in this time of reflection might be, Lord, I, I've actually like drifted a bit. But I realize I need a savior. I realize I need a hero. Because this life is terrifying on my own. And I need you to help me. Whatever it is, take these next few moments for yourself. And then I'll be back up in a few moments to lead us into a time of ministry and response.